0: Welcome to Founder Story, your go-to podcast series on breakout startups and the secret heroes behind them. Each week, we bring you a fresh new take on leading figures in the startup landscape as we deep dive in their startup journeys. In today's episode, we have Jeremy, the man behind Yusup. Jeremy, welcome to the show. So, how are you doing today?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited.
0: Briefly introduce yourself and what are you building.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Jeremy Moser. Um, I'm co-founder and CEO at Usurp, and we're a digital PR and SEO agency that serves uh, high-growth startups, mostly venture-backed companies. Um, so brands like Monday.com, Robinhood, ActiveCampaign, Hotjar, and, and mostly kind of tech startups of that nature.
0: Um, would you mind telling us how did you get into content marketing as CEO? Why is your background before this? How did you get into it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a really good question. So I, I kinda started and just fell into the content marketing world after college. Uh got a job at a marketing agency that was doing a lot of like local marketing for kind of smaller businesses in the uh Southern California area. So got my start doing like really boring local marketing stuff for companies that um, you know, weren't doing all the most exciting, like on trend things, but uh, it was a good, you know, spot to get your feet wet in terms of working with businesses and seeing how they grow and learning, you know, what types of content marketing actually work for different types of companies. Um, So got my start there and then uh we re- really shifted the business, kind of went through a transition period where the founders parted ways and kind of went in two different directions. And I stuck with one of them and then they ended up transitioning that company to serve more kind of technology, software, SaaS companies overall. And just really fell in love with the, the whole idea of working with software companies the the idea of tech in that you're just moving much quicker you're doing more ambitious things than a lot of local companies where a lot of it is kind of that tried and true material in marketing whereas in the tech software world you get to experiment a lot more you get to test new things and so really found a calling there and then from there after i think about six years there um, spun up my own agency with my business partner and, and really started focusing on a lot more of the SEO, digital PR, off-page style stuff, um, and really tying that back into you know software growth and marketing goals. And it's been a, a fun journey since then.
0: Awesome. I uh, had a look at your client list, at least the prominent ones. You're working with big brands like Monday.com, especially in sales. These are leading companies, Freshworks. How did you acquire them? Is that something you did at the very beginning or you had to build up a rapport and approach them? How did that work? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So at, at the beginning stages, when I started, I had a few clients that were kind of smaller scale clients overall, kind of a mix between maybe some smaller software companies at the time. Uh, really worked a lot at the beginning stages with more seed stage startups where um, they had smaller budgets, they were kind of just getting off the ground, needed someone to kind of run the strategy element of things. Um, and so it really transitioned from there. You know, We didn't start off acquiring like monday.com or Freshworks as clients and really built up our momentum from there. And we've used all sorts of kind of lead generation models, really from the beginning stages. It was really just about how do we go out there and we just use our existing connections. And so, as I mentioned, you know, I had around six years of experience in this direct space overall. And so I just built up a lot of relationships, people I knew, clients that I'd worked with before, or maybe I'd been intro to other folks before. So really just leverage my existing network to kind of get our foot off the ground there. And really just build up that initial client base to where uh, our focus in the early stages was just how do we deliver as good of results as possible so that people will give us referrals because especially when you're in an early stage agency uh, it's really hard to go out there and acquire customers by things like outreach or just connecting with people you need to build up some sort of trust and rapport in the market and so uh, a lot of how you can do that is really just how do i get those early stage clients how do i over deliver for them undercharge them, build up a lot of that really good relationship status to where they're actively going out and promoting us. And so that was really key for us in the early stages was just how do we do the best work that we can and then transition that into actually building a long-term brand to where folks are coming to our door. They're coming to us out of, you know, they're coming from organic. Maybe we're doing outreach and it's working better because people can trust our brand. They see us around. So we've tested kind of the whole range of, of lead gen models. But that was really you know what got us our first start
0: there. right, um and uh, in terms of your company size right now, how many employees do you have right now? What's your revenue like uh currently?
1: Yep, yeah, so we're at about I think we're around like thirty three employees total now, including myself and my co-founder um and growing month over month um so yeah we're we're uh been growing really rapidly in the past year or so. And uh, I think we've tripled maybe in the last year. And so we started in, um, 2019, a little bit later in 2019. And since then I've been growing pretty well and exciting to see kind of the, the trajectory of where we go from here.
0: Uh, in terms of revenue, you're doing like seven figures right now or hit close to eight.
1: Where, where are you in terms of revenue? Yeah. Really good question. So we're kind of, uh, we're approaching that mid seven figures of revenue right now. Um, and everything we do is monthly recurring for us. So we work with brands usually from. Um, at a minimum of around six to 12 months stints, but uh, typically for us, you know, clients tend to stay uh, for quite a long time because we we really do prioritize how do we get the best results? Because obviously it's much easier to keep existing clients and do great work for them than going out and trying to source hundreds and hundreds of clients on a yearly basis. Um, so it really enables us to to be selective on who we work with, which is always great because um, we can really build out really long term partnerships and relationships with our clients. I
0: mean, um when you talk about scalability, especially in the service industry, right? Uh, could be agencies, any people, businesses. Uh, the reoccurring theme is is hard to scale people, businesses or, or agencies. What would you say to that? Is that is that, uh, is that for real? Is it, do you think that is the case or it's not the case? Let's say compared to a SaaS business, it'll be much easier to scale because everything happened itself, right? Um, but what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, definitely. I hear this debate quite often. And I like it from one perspective, because it de incentivizes people to start agencies, which means I have less competition overall. Um, So in one sense, I do like that. Um, On the other sense of reality, I think um, the lines are a little blurred. And it, it really does depend on what type of service you offer, how good you are at the business aspect, like how much do you charge? what are your margins, things like this really all play into to how well you can scale an agency. And I, thought, I think a lot of folks tend to start agencies in the wrong perspective of shifting from something like a freelancer over to an agency at some point versus having that intention from the beginning of I'm going to start this agency. I'm going to get myself out of the day to day. I'm going to build a team around this. And I think when you have that intentionality of I'm going to start this as an agency from scratch, uh, you really tend to build it a little bit differently and you structure it much more different than you would as a freelancer. And I think a lot of that plays into what's the brand you're building? What's the credibility that you have? Can you get results? And then obviously, can you charge the amount that you need to charge to really deliver uh, extremely good results and pay your people well? Have a team that sticks around for the long-term. So I think, you know, overall, you can definitely scale a SaaS business a little bit quicker and a little bit easier in the sense that, um, you, you know, obviously people tend to not be the bottleneck in software. Um, versus in an agency, you do need to constantly be hiring new people, training them, developing them. So there obviously is that really people focused element of growing it that that tends to trip people up. And I think one thing we've done really that's helped us there is establish a really strong and firm hiring process to where we've got folks on a, you know, a little quick sheet that we can go to at any given time. And we say, okay, let's say we have five new clients coming in this month and we don't have the capacity for that let's you know, have a quick list that we can go to of folks that we've already interviewed, we've screened, we've maybe even given them kind of paid test work before to where we understand how they work, they understand how we work and we can get them on board really quickly. And for us, that's been a really key kind of game changer in being able to scale, um, especially as demand goes up. We don't have to go through the process of training new folks and getting them up to speed. That generally is gonna take you anywhere from 30 to 60 days depending on how you structure things and what you do and how technical it is. Um, So doing that for us has been a really key kind of growth lever that's allowed us to take on a lot more clients.
0: Um, Yeah, if you take somebody like Neil Patel, uh, who happens to be the king of agencies, you can easily name him. Like he's doing like nine figures. Right. So it is definitely scalable. Uh, but I think, uh, as you said, it's mostly has to do with, uh, how could I with people? If you, if you can handle people well, uh, manage people well, maybe agency will work for you. Whereas if that's not your skill. Maybe SaaS will be a better option for you. Right. Um, you think that that'll be, uh, that, that's a good, um, uh, explanation for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think obviously Neil Patel gets a lot of hate in the kind of SEO marketing industry for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but I think it's undeniable his ability, obviously, to grow a successful agency. And I think he makes some really good points around the idea of just agencies versus SaaS and the business models overall. And that either way, if you're looking to scale a company that does multiple millions of dollars a year in revenue, um, you're likely going to need some amount of people management at some point. Um, it's very unlikely, it's uncommon to see folks like there's Peter Levels, et cetera, who are like kind of the exception, not the rule, where they've got some really cool SaaS companies, they're doing great stuff, and it's just them. Um, I mean, they probably have freelancers, other things they source to, obviously. Um, but again, it's the exception, not the rule. And really, if you're trying to scale a company that's going to do multiple millions of dollars a year in revenue, um, you need to get comfortable managing people, hiring people, training them. If you look at a lot of the biggest software companies in the world, um, a lot of them are not profitable and have huge, huge teams to scale, right? So it really depends on what angle you're looking at. If you want to build the biggest software company in the world, you know, you're going to be managing way more people, your profit's going to be much lower, your margin is going to be non-existent, you're going to be burning a ton of money. I think if you're talking from a small perspective of like, you know, this is a person that's looking to maybe quit their job and go a certain route. I think if you are kind of code or technical inclined and building a small software startup is is a great idea. There's no doubt. Um I think the competition you'll face there tends to be a little bit more firm than agencies. And I think agencies, if you have that skill, you can really productize what you're doing there um, by really creating systems, standard operating procedures, just basically brain dumping everything that's in your own mind and putting it into documents that other folks can come into. They can learn, you can build them up. So I think, you know, both, both models are really viable. I think it just depends on what route you want to go. If that's software you know you might get a better valuation if your end goal is to sell pretty quickly. If you're looking to have a more sustainable company that generates really good cash flow on a yearly basis, agency route is probably better for you, so it kind of just depends
0: on on the route you want to go down. Uh, right well, on that uh, software business, I think you do have a software company as well on uh, the site. Could you tell us a bit about that? I think it's a SaaS product.
1: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So we uh, acquired this company in late 2020. It's called Wordable.io and essentially uh, exports your Google Docs. So if you're like a, a content company or you're a writer, or you own a blog or you're working at a SaaS company, anything like that, and you publish content to your site on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, um, it essentially exports your Google Docs straight to your CMS and does all the formatting, Image compression, all those kind of alt attributes, all those kind of minuscule things for you. Um, so it automates that process of going from actually writing in the doc to publishing on your site. Um, and we acquired that in uh, late
0: 2020, and have just since kind of been growing that on the side. Uh, how do you see that uh, in terms of growing? it? Is it as easy as your agency to grow it, or do you see that as more challenging?
1: I think it's it's uh it's definitely more challenging to grow than the agency. Um, especially with the momentum that we've generated on the agency side of things and our contract sizes on the agency side, they just tend to be much larger than that of the, the SaaS product and SaaS product is more, uh, kind of a mid market SaaS where we're not looking to get every single kind of low quality publisher on the market or, or anyone that writes content. Uh, we're really looking to see how do we target agencies there? Um, you know, media companies, publishers, folks that are doing 20, 30, 50, 100 pieces per month on their site is our main target customer profile for Wordable. Um, so it's kind of mid-market there, uh, but a little more tricky to grow overall than uh, the agency side where a single contract value might be, let's say 20K a month for a year, right? So the, the difference there is pretty massive in terms of uh, the sales process overall. So I do find the agency with just the momentum we have, it's a little bit easier to grow from a, just a sheer top line revenue standpoint. Um, but I think the SaaS is a really good kind of supplemental to what we do at the agency where um it's almost like a tripwire in a sense, right? Of, of we get folks in the door at a cheaper cost on the, the SaaS side of things, they start to get into that ecosystem. It's really vertically related to our agency in that folks that are publishing a lot of content, they need a lot of help with the strategy. They need a lot of help with the off-page link building, digital PR. And so it's really a natural next step for us to then go to those folks who come through on the software side and just say, hey, we see you're publishing a lot of stuff here, you're doing good here. And then just give them feedback, advice, and potentially next steps for strategy um, to where it's just a really good kind of getting their foot in the door. It's a good lead generation for us, um, as well as obviously just its own company too. Okay. Let's talk a bit about
0: uh, SEO. How important is SEO for a SaaS company compared to paid marketing?
1: Yep, definitely. I, I think SEO really comes to shine for SaaS companies when you get beyond that kind of Series A round where you really have some sort of product market fit. You have an idea of what customers like, what they don't like, what's your hero, you know, what's winning for your company is really key to know before you jump into SEO. So I think if you're a seed stage or anything around that, um, paid marketing just kind of accelerates the idea of if you're going to get product market fit or not. Uh, it really helps you understand What's going to work for your product and what isn't? And you might have to pivot at some point in those early stages, right? So I think doing SEO too early, um, is a little bit dangerous depending on how solidified you are, uh, in the vision of your product. So if you think maybe there's room to adapt, it's a changing market. It's based on trends or anything like that. I'd avoid SEO until you have some of that series A funding. So you have product market fit where if you, you know, transition the whole product or you divert something, all of that SEO that's bringing in relevant traffic might not be relevant anymore. And so that's something to consider when you're in those really early stages. But I think once you hit that Series A mark, once you know people enjoy your product, they're sharing it on their own, SEO is a really great way to just amplify that and capture even more demand. I think it's really critical um, too. It can give you super great insights for even you know your paid campaigns as well of what's working, what converts best on an organic perspective, how do we extrapolate that to more paid ads and retargeting? So if you're bringing in a ton of really valuable traffic that you know is pretty warm uh, based on SEO, and then you retarget those, you're paying pennies to the dollar in comparison uh, to just cold advertising, right? And so there's a lot of good mutual benefits there. Um, and I really recommend companies that at least once you get that product market fit to, to start investing in SEO, because it is a long term game, right? You need to at least give it a couple months to start seeing results and then the results really compound when you get to that six, seven, eight, ten, you know, twelve month mark is where you start to see uh that become a really popular and, and major growth acquisition channel for your company.
0: Let's talk a bit about a uh, link building, right? How do you do it at scale? Right. There are a lot of sites that offering um links that you can buy links. They're quite sketchy. How do you do it at scale? Could you
1: walk us through that? Totally, yeah. So Right off the bat, I would uh, almost always avoid any sites that are offering kind of paid links. Um, so if you go to, you'll see this is pretty common, uh, which is what makes link building really difficult. In that, it, it's super hard to get high quality links from high quality sources um, because those are the sites that you can't buy out. Um, you can't go to to HubSpot and email their product marketing manager or their blog manager and say, "Hey, let me buy a link on your site." They're gonna, you know, tell you to screw off. They're gonna block you. Movie to spam, and so it's really difficult to scale the the high quality link building. And so first off, I'd I'd recommend not buying any links on low quality sites. I think it's um, you know you're just putting yourself at risk long term for sustainability in SEO, um, and that's really the key is how do you sustain SEO as a growth engine for one, two, three, ten years down the line, to where you look at major companies like Canva, Mailchimp, Zapier, etc. Very, you know, good teams when it comes to SEO overall and doing things the right way, and those have been leading, you know, lead generation machines for them for decades at this point. Um, and so, what you really want to look there is long term. So, when it comes to scaling, really good quality link building, um, a lot of it for us comes down to how do you build the right relationships with people to where you're not just sending a cold email to an inbox that's getting fifty to hundred of those same emails on a daily basis. I mean, anyone that works at any given company. Um, you guys have probably seen this yourself, right? Of folks emailing, they want a link from your site, they're asking for a guest post, they're asking for something from you. And you just see that so often that sending those emails is just going to have a super low conversion rate. Um, and you really want to focus and prioritize, how do I build relationships with site owners, journalists, uh, media owners, bloggers, things of that nature to where you're kind of skipping the line, so to speak, and you're just going directly to the source versus kind of sending a cold email and hoping it works those can work but on a very small basis so you need to send you know thousands and thousands a month and and by a year's time you've kind of burned through a massive list of contacts that are probably marking you as spam so you run into a lot of those issues so if you're trying to scale high quality link building you know number one is going to be build as many good relationships as you can number two is going to be prioritize content that is really impactful and that people want to share and that's not always going to be directly SEO related. So it's kind of counterintuitive in that sense. Um, most folks try to go out and they try to promote their, you know, XX best marketing tools list. And, and no one wants to share that content because it's super generic. It's boring. We've all seen it before. Um, but that's the kind of content that ranks, right? So then you run into that counterintuitive uh, nature of SEO, where sometimes you need to write content on your site that is not directly keyword focused. And maybe it's really a long form. Kind of thought leadership style piece where it's maybe contrarian or it gets people to think differently it gets people to react and share it a lot of that type of content can really generate high quality links at scale even if it's not directly keyword driven um, you're still going to get tons of that benefit of, of a lot of those links coming to your site lots of authority and lots of shares and i think that's going to be you know one of the ways we see it's what we're seeing right now is a lot of brands that are winning are doing this form of content where they're not just trying to promote a generic SEO piece, they're really writing something that's very thought leadership driven. And then that's just getting them much more shares, much more connections, and and the ability to really extend the link building that
0: they're doing. You said something earlier uh, for SaaS companies not to do focus on SEO initially. Why?
1: Yep. Yeah. So I think the biggest factor there is that, um, you know, you, you just don't know yet what your final product is or what product market fit you have yet. And I think if you have to pivot too soon, you run the risk of now you've invested a lot of money in content that is not directly related to your product anymore. The traffic that you're bringing in now might not be as high intent. So let's say your software, you know, exports Google Docs to WordPress like ours. Maybe we shift that into something else where it's like, Uh, you know, an AI writing tool, it's like the traffic that we're getting now is probably much more uh, complex. It's a little different. The user intent isn't the same. So if someone's coming to our site from a, you know, a tutorial of how do I upload something into my content management system, and now they're coming to our site and it's all about an AI tool, you know, they might just be a little skeptical. The traffic is probably going to convert at much lower rates. Um, So I think it's really key to get that product market fit. To really have an established kind of long-term vision of what your product does so that you can tie into those SEO goals and and really publish content that's going to rank long-term, but also drive really good
0: traffic long-term. You you just mentioned about um, AI writing tools, like CopyAI, there are a lot of tools out there right now. How effective are they uh, when it comes to uh, creating content? Yeah, I
1: think they're extremely effective if you use them in the right way. So I think the wrong way to use AI tools is looking at them as kind of a one and done solution in that you go to the tool, you click a few buttons, you have thousands of pages of content and you publish it, I think is the wrong way to do it. I think the right way to do it is using AI tools for a few different ways, like maybe it's inspiration, uh, maybe it's creating an outline that you can edit and adapt from. Maybe it's writing a few sentences or paragraphs in your piece that then you can go tweak, edit. You can add expertise that um, an AI writer is just not going to be able to pull in at a certain extent. You need some of those vertical experts to where your content is really going to resonate with the audience that you're targeting, especially if you're in more technical areas, your firmographics are different. Um, If you're trying to write, let's say, to someone who's really technical and you're talking about like database security, AI, excuse me. AI is probably not going to be able to pull in a lot of that, you know, key insider information that you have and that only you have from that ground, ground level experience, right? So you need some of that, uh, human input in there. And I think AI tools are really impactful for making a process more efficient. Uh, I mean, personally, we've used tools like copy AI, simplify a lot of these other ones where, um, you know, we can really fine tune our process to say, we're going to save time here on headline creation. We're going to plug in ideas and it's going to generate a hundred of them for us. Like this is going to save us a ton of time on writing headlines, subject lines. Here's how we generate like an outline in 10 minutes that we can then go and adapt versus doing all the primary research ourselves. Um, so I think, you know, having a combination there of of actually using it as inspiration, but then fine tuning it to fit your audience and your goals, um, I think is a critical distinction that it is hard to miss. Sometimes you think that it's kind of a one and done, but it's really just that, you know, assistant that can help you reach the next level.
0: Let's talk a bit about the current economic downturn. A lot of the companies are cutting costs on marketing, right? How has that impacted you? Do you see that as a thing, especially compared to agency business? Can you feel that, uh, they're cutting back on marketing or no?
1: Yeah, super good question. So we've seen kind of a mix of different things. We've seen, uh, and it, it goes in line with, you know, what I would expect where smaller companies, um, who maybe aren't as clear on when they're going to raise their next round, if that funding is going to close, um, they tend to pause their budgets first and be more reactionary. Whereas brands who they have really established fit in the marketplace, they have really strong market share, they have a lot of runway, a lot of revenue. They're probably profitable as well. Those are our ideal clients to where they know that this is a long-term investment and that it's not kind of an on and off switch where they can pause things at any time and then just pick it back up down the line. We see this really often to where um, when you do these sort of things, you tend to lose a lot of market share. You lose a lot of momentum to where if you're pausing on and off and your competitor isn't, uh, you're going to lose so much time, so much energy and resources uh, that if you had probably just kept that on, you would have seen things turn out better in the end. And, and we see this a lot during downturns, like we did kind of in, uh, you know, the early stages of COVID, things like that, where folks were pausing their budgets. Um, your, your marketing efforts that you put in now, uh, generate results in six to 12 months from now. And so there's a really strong misconception that you can kind of pause and restart your marketing and it's going to be fine. And it usually stems from the idea that, okay, our business is running well now, everything's fine. Like, Let's just pause for a couple months and then we'll pick it back up when everything's a little more clear. But then you create that little disaster for yourself down the line where, okay, it's three, four months later since you've paused and now your pipeline's drying up, sales qualified leads are gone, everything's kind of slowing down. And that's the cause and effect there of when you stop your marketing, you might not see any direct impacts for three to four months. But once you get to that point, now you're left with a, a low pipeline. You don't have any leads, sales coming in. And then your marketing again is going to take you three, four, five, six months to see those results again. So you've now created almost an entire year of slower growth for yourself by just pausing it. Um so we we, you know, back to the question and answering your question. Um, you know, we see smaller companies definitely go and hit the pause button. Uh conversely, though, we see larger companies which is the vast majority of folks that we work with, we see them actually double down in these times and say, okay, this is working, like, let's put more fuel on the fire, let's gain more momentum, more market share. And I think that's the, the most smart move you can make in a time like this. Because as I mentioned, when your competitors are pausing, that's an opportunity that you rarely get in the market to gain more momentum. Um, it just gives you a whole host of opportunity to gain significant ground that you otherwise couldn't.
0: Let's talk a bit about Twitter. You have on like 8k followers. What's your strategy with Twitter?
1: Yeah, so I started Twitter back in uh, January of 2021. Um, and it was pretty, it was, uh, I, I don't want to say new back then in terms of, you know, folks posting threads and things like that, but it's, it's obviously changed in the past, almost two years at this point, a um, little over a year and a half, I guess. But what I was posting back then, the threads were pretty rare. And there weren't that many folks that were posting kind of like detailed, long threads, diving into cool topics. There was a few people doing that at the time. And I just thought that was really interesting. And I said, okay, I have all this information, this knowledge from directly working on some stuff around copywriting, SEO, content marketing. It's all in my notebooks. Like, why don't I just share some of this? Because I see other people are doing it. It's pretty cool. You know, they're gaining momentum, nothing to lose here. So I was just like, okay, let me just start posting a lot of this. And that's really where it stemmed from. You know, I just... I think I was a little bit more of an early adopter, which helped. I think now is is really difficult to compete with just the sheer amount of content that's being post posted on Twitter, especially if we're talking about anything in like the business, entrepreneurship, SaaS, SEO type spaces are just really crowded now on Twitter. Um, But my strategy there was just let me take everything that I've already done that's like put away in notebooks, or maybe I, I wrote articles for a site one time. Let me just take all of that information and just share it on Twitter in a format that it's much more digestible. Um, and I think that's the way that you win long term with Twitter now is, uh, you know, there's two ways to go about it. You can either A, make it your full time job in the sense that you're going out, you're researching new ideas, you're coming up with new stuff, you're writing new pieces for Twitter, new threads, posts, ideas. Or B, you can take a lot of the stuff that you've done existing and just repurpose and reformat it into a way that's much more digestible and meant for Twitter itself versus like sharing a link or making things too long form. Um, I think B personally, at least for me, is is the right move um, just because it, it takes less time and it's not my main focus. And really it's more about how do I amplify some of the stuff that I've already done versus come up with new ideas because it just takes too long for me personally. It's not the highest use of my time. But if I were starting new from scratch on Twitter and I wanted to grow quickly, I'd say, Connect with you know, your first couple hundred people that are around your size or maybe a little bit bigger. Build a good relationship with them. Start sharing and engaging with their content. Build a really small community that can help amplify you uh, even further, and once you get to that couple thousand follower mark, that's when you can start to see a lot of the impacts of things like threads where you need some of that initial traction to see good success. If you're just posting threads with a hundred followers it's extremely unlikely that you're gonna see any traction. So you need to build up that base over time and then really go full steam once you get a couple thousand followers that are you know, engaging and interacting with you on a daily basis.
0: And how beneficial has Twitter been to you? Is it helping you in terms of building, uh, uh, generating leads or in any other way?
1: Yep, absolutely, yeah. So Twitter is a really strong lead generation for us for the agency side of things. Um, It's just a really great way to connect with folks that are in kind of the SaaS spaces over overall and like VPs of marketing, CMOs, directors of content strategy are kind of the main folks that we connect with. And we see Twitter as a really good good place for that because you're really going direct to source. And a lot of Twitter is less salesy and less kind of, How do I get someone to buy compared to something like LinkedIn? I think LinkedIn is fantastic too for lead generation. I think it's just a little more direct. And so you have to be aware of that when you're on the platform. Whereas Twitter, I think is is more about how do I build long-term relationships with a lot of the people that I'm connecting with? And I think that's where a lot of the lead generation tends to shine. It's less like an on and off switch of I'm going to post on Twitter and instantly get, you know, five or 10 leads a month. And it's more of, how do I play the long game of build real connections, post valuable content that maybe in three, six months is going to generate a ton of leads for us. And we've seen that as being a really big driver of of new business for us. Um, And it's also great too, to connect with other folks in your space and just like learn from other founders, other marketers, other people that you can get new ideas from that you might not have been able to connect with in the first place. And I think that's the really great thing about Twitter is that people are really open to sharing all their ideas and everything that they're doing that's working, that's not working. I think it's a really great way to just accelerate your learning. And uh, kind of the you know, secondary benefit there is obviously you build connections and, and you get more leads and you get more sales.
0: I see that you're verified on Twitter. What's the secret for that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, I, I wish I had some sort of secret there, but I uh, I applied like two or three times and uh, they rejected me. And then I applied again for a final time and they accepted me and I didn't do anything different on any of those applications. So I have no, no
0: words of wisdom there to share. <laughs> All right. OK, um, so if you had some advice to give to your younger self, what would that be? knowing what you know now.
1: Yep. Yeah. So I would say, you know, the, the biggest piece of advice I'd give myself earlier is to to really just like zoom out a bit from what I'm doing. And, you know, entrepreneurship, being a founder, anything like that has a lot of highs and lows. Um, and if you ride those and you you think you're really great when you're at the top, you think you're really bad when you're at the bottom, you can start to kind of blame yourself internally and say, there's something wrong with me this isn't supposed to happen. But in reality, entrepreneurship is never a straight line. It's never linear growth. And there's always going to be ups and downs. So I think zooming out and and really, even if this involves like, writing things down for you, or however you process these types of things, create like a journal of like, you know, when things are going good, and when things are going bad, and then what happened after that. And almost always, you'll find yourself if you just keep going, everything turns out to be fine. Um, There's plenty of days in the last couple of years of, of running this company where I've I've felt like, oh, no, a bunch of clients are leaving or revenues like way down and our spend is way up where you you start to feel in the short term like things are going wrong. And then you look back on that instance like five months later and you think, OK, why was I even stressed about any of this in the first place? Um So really, you know, keeping keeping a journal of like all of your feelings, your day to day things, I think is really key as a founder because it really tells you like everything that you thought was such a major deal in the long run really wasn't. So really just zooming out, looking at things on a longer time period can really put things at ease for you and and make you feel a little bit better when, you know, maybe things are going worse than you expected.
0: Name three books that changed the way that you think.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I'd say to put one as the number one, I'd say how to win friends and influence people. I think the, you know, most people in these spaces have read this. I think this is one that you could read over and over and over again. If it was one book that you could possibly read till the end of time, I think that's probably the number one winner. Um, I think everything in business success really comes down to, to engaging, connecting with people, learning how to speak to people, learning how to motivate people, inspire people, get them to buy from you. All of these different things are really key. So I'd say that's kind of the number one book. Um, another good one is High Output Management by um I think by Andy Grove. Um really great book on uh yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. Really great book on on really just how to manage people. And I think if you're looking to, to scale a company of any sorts and really get to pass that 10, 20, 30 people mark, uh, I think it's a really key read just to understand how do you best incentivize people to do their best work and how do you motivate them. Um, a third book, I'd say, would be probably Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson. I think this is a really good kind of more introductory book of like, how do you get started with a business? Like, how do you grow it online? How do you create funnels and tripwires? And how do you get leads? Kind of a whole multitude of different aspects of growing a business online. Um, and I think Russell Brunson uh, has some really cool ideas there that you can implement.
0: Thank you for sharing your journey with us. And that's a wrap. Thank you all for tuning in. If you liked the episode, spread the word. Share it on your socials. You can follow us on Twitter and Insta for more sneak peeks on what's to come. Until next week, keep on building.